Lordy, 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 I have news for you. Welcome to the I Hate Everyone podcast, the only podcast run by a 24-year-old black magician from Wisconsin, and the news is here. Formerly working as the museum, who Houdini, fuck, what was it? Formerly working as the director of the Houdini Museum of New York. Yes, sadly, I quit. My job as the director of the Houdini Museum, the thing that got me noticed when I got to New York, the article in the Times was written about it, the job that seemed to be made for me being a historian of the history of black and magicians, all these factors went into it. But the one thing culminated to this, and this was the fact that my boss fucking sucked. So I'm going to tell you some of the shit that he did, because you will not believe it. And then... I'm going to tell you my job search and how that's been going for the last, like, maybe two weeks. And I'm going to tell you how I've been getting interviews. And I'm going to tell you some changes you can make to your resume because I've applied for, like, probably 600 jobs in New York. I'm going to tell you changes you can make to your resume that will get it noticed because in the last two weeks, I've gotten more interviews from the changes I made in my resume than I've gotten in the last two years submitting resumes to New York. So I'm going to tell you the changes that I've made. But first, why did I quit my job at the Houdini Museum? So if you don't know, I got the job at the Houdini Museum. When I first moved to New York, I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, applied for a shit ton of jobs, nowhere would hire me. I had about $100 left, and the Houdini Museum of New York hired me to work as the PR director. Out of college, I got a directorial level role at the age of 23, and I was able to work there and turn it around a lot, in my opinion, since working there. I worked there about eight months, And it was, I had a lot going for me there, I will say, because the thing is, like, when I had, like, news interviews, it's usually about what it was like for me working at the museum. Because uh, when I worked at the museum, the big connection is that Houdini was from my, uh, like, town in Wisconsin. So this was, like, uh, is a really big good for my career because it's very easy to be like oh this is the next Houdini next Houdini so it's very like it was very hard for me to put that part of my life away because it was so easy for me you know like when we got in AM New York New York Times Complex ABC NBC Fox I say all the things and I was just in my first six months working there so like Working there another year, we definitely could have gotten so much more news. My name could have got out there a lot more after getting in these articles. I got offers for like TV shows, like reality TV shows, like sitcom, like interests. Like, I'm not gonna say offers because I didn't get an offer for a sitcom, but like interest. I had people wanting to be my manager, I had agents reaching out, and like it would be nice to have that comfort of being like, oh, I can just do it again, stay at the Houdini Museum. But like, the job really fucking sucked, man. Like, it sucked so hard and I just couldn't get through this corona thing while working there no matter what possibilities come with that and a big thing that I'm thinking about now is I'm working on a I can announce it I guess now because like I don't work there anymore but I'm working on a a TV show that I I kind of hinted to about the history of black magicians and this uh, TV show I couldn't even tell my boss about because he's so obsessed with fucking money that he would make me like try to like make it about the, the Houdini Museum somehow and I'm like no they want me because they saw me 
and this New York Times article. They contacted me. They liked my style. They liked my idea for this show because I've been thinking about this idea for a long time. So I'm working on it with a company called Carga 7 out of L.A. And uh, I can finally announce it now because I knew if he knew about it before, something would happen. And I was really scared to quit because I thought that they wanted me as the director of the Houdini Museum. You know, they they were like, you know what? He's the director of the Houdini Museum. The show would make sense because he's magic history, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I'm like, no, fuck. I'm a black, a black, black magic historian, regardless of whether I work at the Houdini Museum or not. Like, I'm cool regardless of that. I have all these features regardless of whether I still work there. So that was a big thing for me. I'm like, is this just part of my personality? And that's something I have to separate. It's not. And I don't need that to be a good or well-known magician, which is what my path is leading towards, I think. So that was a big part of it. But yes, the show hopefully is coming. We will see what happens. The industry is shut down right now. Um, sadly, this was we finished the sizzle reel, which I was filming. I had to film in the museum. And it was in L.A. The Carga 7, the company, is in L.A. So they would film when their offices were just about closed at about 5, which meant I had to wait till 7 my time to film. But they wanted to film in the Houdini Museum. So I had to wait till my boss left so he didn't see what I was doing. And I would sit there and film for hours. We would film sizzles. We would read lines. And like a sizzle is basically the, the, the tape you show. The, it's like a mini commercial that you show the uh, company that to hope that they like it and want to build a bigger show so i would sit there uh like from i'd wait till my boss left and he would be there till 8 p.m and i would sit there from like 8 to like 10 30 just reading lines over and over try saying it like this try saying it like this how about doing some magic here do some of this there and we filmed this for a few weeks but i was just beat because i was like getting home at like 11 12 at night from just filming and hoping my boss didn't figure it out what I was doing I'd be like yeah I'm doing work and he was like wow they're so impressed everyone's impressed that you're staying so late and like little did he know that I was trying to film a, a tv show so that was uh that was really interesting filming that I got it back and I wasn't super impressed <laughs> I got it back and I was slightly disappointed uh mainly because it just wasn't what I envisioned a lot of it is uh I don't want if I make a TV show, I don't want it to be a black version of something like Chris Angel's TV show or Magic for Humans on Netflix, which is a TV show uh, where he just goes around doing magic for people. Like, I didn't want it to be like that. I'm like, we have a chance. We have a chance to make a TV show about the history of black magicians. And you don't know about this. Like, you guys listen to the podcast, but they had these really amazing stories of these black magicians that did these really incredible things that sound mythical. So what I mean by that is there's, like, I have a poster in my room of a dude by uh, named Frank Brents who traveled around the world as a black man in the, like, mid-1900s, and he would take a duck and like make it fucking vanish and like take the head off of it and shit like that and perform this trick for the princess of monaco and like there's like the story of like uh who is a black herman who's this magician that would bury himself underground three days before a show and unbury himself and walk on stage and do a whole magic show and then he died on stage of a heart attack and uh no one believed he was dead he was like the og tupac is what i always say and uh this is uh these, these magicians have these crazy stories, these crazy lives, and these crazy tricks that we haven't seen ever before. And I'm like, this would be an amazing show, the history of these magicians going around and like meeting modern people 
and getting to see really cool modern magic and talking about how we could potentially do some of this shit from before. And I was like, that's my idea. That's how I pitch it to them. And they're like, yes, that shit is fucking fire. And I get there. Well, I don't get there. I'm filming with them. And they're like, all right, now read the next line. And I'm like, literally, this is what the line was. The line was, one magician set himself on fire a hundred years ago. So I am going to bury myself, or not bury myself, I guess, dive into a tank of boiling hot lava. And I'm like, nigga, what the f-? I looked at him after that and I was like, you can't be serious. And he was like, no, we're serious. And I'm like, why would you have me say this? And they're like, because you're going to do it. And I'm like, why would I do this? And they're like, because anything's possible on TV. And I was like, no, what? That's not possible. The thing is, it's not that it's not possible. The thing is with magicians, we have this thing called the two perfect principle. And the two perfect principles, the idea that if you, this is a great uh, thing for life. If you want someone to believe something, it cannot be too perfect, which means if you want someone to believe that you're doing something, it's essentially Occam's razor. You, uh, Occam's razor is the idea that uh, the simplest solution is the solution that most likely is. So the idea of the two perfect principles, if something is too perfect, if something, if, if I was in the middle of a Walmart, <laughs> too perfect in the middle of a walmart and i levitated into the air and when i levitated in the air i came back down and you saw that on tv and there's nothing else nothing else it's just it's too perfect it's just the perfect levitation at all the angles you can see every single angle you're going to assume that there's wires you're going to assume there's wires and no one's going to be able to tell you that there's not wires that's just how it works you ever see a magic trick where you're just like i just i know how that works it's because they didn't leave any room for doubt for you to not think for you to think that's not how it works if that makes sense they didn't leave there was no there was no outs there if that makes sense i'm trying to explain this but it's uh it can't be too perfect so the idea of me jumping in a tank of lava it's too perfect everyone knows lava is so hot that's not physically possible i just can't be in the lava like you would know if I jumped in a tank of lava, I wouldn't be in a fucking tank of lava. Like it's it's not like I'm gonna come out with lava on me and brush it off and shit, you know. So I'm like, this is not feasible. We should not sell this show this way. This is a mistake. But um, they filmed it anyway. <laughs> so we will see what happens with that. If anything, I actually have been talking to. I have like a showrunner that I've kind of been like working with, who's been doing this with me, filming this, and he's kind of like been directing it. And I have not heard from him in the last week. Right after like Corona was kind of announced, he was like, "Hey, let me know if you're all right." And then I have not heard from him in about two weeks. So we will have to see what happens. So I quit the museum. My boss was a dick. How was he a dick? Well, the main thing is he was just this self-obsessed 50-year-old man that was always with women, always fucking with different women, like all the time. Like this is bringing in, hey, this is my friend, this is my friend, that. This is my friend calling me with women on the phone. Like it's like just all the time he would like call me on a Sunday and I'd be hearing like girls giggling in the background or maybe one. I'm hoping one. I don't know what he does. Like I guess like if he has more than one, good for him. High five for anyone else. But the fact that I'm talking about him, I like whatever. So he would have like women in the background calling me. He would call me every single day in the morning before he came in, like 10 minutes before he got there, which he got there at like nine when I got there or like, it was like 10. And he would call me at night and he would call. And I didn't get off until like seven. Right. So like the museum didn't close. I am venting. about. I'm like shaking, venting about this. The museum didn't close until six. So um, and then in the winter hours, I believe there was seven. 
So the museum didn't close until seven. Uh, after seven, I had to close up at 7.30. Then I'd always have to mail packages out, which would be a little bit later. And then I w- usually wouldn't get out until around 8, 8.30. So if it was a day he was there, he was like feeling neurotic, which I don't know which days they were. Like we had a lot of theories for why he did what he did. But on a day where he was feeling neurotic, he would come in, throw everything on the floor, make me pick it back up and reorganize it and say, that this is the shit. This is the shit. Why is this like this? I'm like, dude, I got here like a month ago. Everything, like, I can't rearrange everything by myself. Because a huge part of this was the fact that I was working there as the director of this museum, right? If I didn't even have a fucking staff. Like, I had, like, two or three guys that worked for me. I had, when I started there, I had four. Like, they started quitting slowly, and I realized that they've been people have been quitting there for years every few months because it sucks so bad. But he, um, I basically only had, like, four guys really working for me. So, uh, it was just a really, really hard situation. He would just come in and be like, you know, like clean all this shit up and they'd be like you're not leaving until this is cleaned up and it would be like nine i stayed there till like 10 p.m with him at, at times and it's just it was just the most like awful situation being like not being able to even be done with my day until six and then knowing i wouldn't get out until at least seven thirty if he wasn't there but, but he was there every single day so knowing i had to stay until eight thirty, and then knowing if he was having a bad day which was most days because he was losing a lot of money which was uh which was a day he would make me stay until like nine, you know, and I had a day where I had a date planned and uh, he sat there and was like, you are not leaving until all this blah, 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 blah. And until we blah, blah, blah. I can't believe we haven't blah, 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 blah. And I stayed there until like 10 fucking 30. And he goes, call your friends and tell them you're like, you're not going to make it out. And I was like, bro, what the fuck, dude, I'm leaving. And I left. So like, I had a lot of problems with that. He would send me, long multi-paged emails like two three pages i am very disappointed you are not doing your job blah 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 blah, all the time and it was just like this is the final urgent warning and keep in mind there was like no one working there right so there's like people who worked for me and then there is the like the art director the account two accountants uh, and two operations people, and that was about it. Because he owned uh, the Houdini Museum, but he also owned a toy company called, uh, called Phantasma Toys, and they make slime and magic kits. And that's a that's a lot of money, or at least at one point it was a lot of money. And then with all that money, he was able to buy a bunch of Houdini things, and those Houdini things uh, or the museum. So I looked after those, but I was also the director of the magic company. So I directed the magic company. And we make magic kits, or we used to. We they make magic kits and they uh they sell like slime and all that stuff so shit stuff stuff shit yeah so that's what it's like a really weird complex job but essentially he made money from that portion i ran the museum and then the magic company online and all those sales so my job was very complex i was doing literally working the front counter of the museum like on days where people other people weren't working with me then i would run to do the online sales i would ship out the packages and i'll just be there all day doing fucking everything and it was really really tough i did that for months and he would just yell and scream every single day at everyone i remember one time we were sitting there with the accountants and one of them told them that we had a bill due or something and he goes you better call them and get my money and then she goes well i'm not gonna call until i get paid because he's always late on payments so he waited two weeks to pay her and her check bounced for two weeks and she goes i want my money and he goes you want 
your money. I want my money. I want my money. And he slams the door and goes in the bathroom and starts crying. Like, I've never seen anything like it. It was insane. It was, uh, one day I went in to talk to him, and he's like, I can't afford to pay you anymore. We're losing so much money. And I'm like, we're not losing money because of me. We're losing money because of you. And he takes his hands and starts ripping out his hair and crying. He's like, I can't do this. And he's just screaming. And I'm like, bro, what the fuck is your problem? And it's it was just... <laughs> I had a crazy fucking time working there because I've never worked for someone that I was scared to talk to him and not scared to talk to him as if like I'm scared of him like the anxiety he would bring on me was a feeling that I couldn't like deal with so I ended up like just deleting his number blocking his number making it so he can't call me like at certain times because it was he got to the point where I uh, was fixing everything. And I put a little chat feature on our website where people can chat it if they have a question and it goes to my phone. And he decided that since I wasn't answering his texts, his emails, or his calls, that he would start using the chat feature to get to me while I was, like, sitting at home, like, resting. And, like, I'm like, bro, if it's 9 p.m. and I'm not answering your fucking email, it's because I'm at home. I'm not fucking working, bitch. Like, what the fuck don't you understand? And then he's, like, chatting me, like... Ah, I see that he, <laughs> I'd be sitting at home and he would say, he doesn't know that I know this. This is why it's really funny. He'd be sending me messages like, I see you are not monitoring the chat as you said you would. It seems you are not available 24 hours as the chat indicates. And I'm like, bitch, of course not. But I see that you're like, I'm not going to reply to you now. So like, it was the worst. He would sit and just monitor me all day long he would have cameras he has cameras in the museum we all like all had the passwords to the cameras to see what was happening but he would watch the cameras when i got in he would watch it when he was in bed he would watch it when i was leaving and before i leave he would call while he was watching the cameras so i would have to end up shutting my phone off before i left so he would stop calling me it's just all the time it was insane just calling all the time you have telling me i have to work weekends because it's just it's crazy and the thing is, it was since we own a magic company, we had a magic shop in the museum. And if we weren't making a certain amount of sales in the magic shop, he would just totally shit on me. And we didn't make a bunch of sales for two reasons. Not because I'm a bad salesperson, but one, because he was hyper aggressive. And what I mean by that is one day we didn't have a lot of sales. I went in and he goes, well, why do we have sales? And I was like, well, today we didn't have a lot of people in. And he goes, I don't care. There's people in the magic shop, mind you. And he says, I don't care if we had one person in the museum. You fucking rape them. You fucking rape them with sales. And you get it from them. And I'm just like, you are screaming. What are you screaming this when the the door is open? He goes, I don't care. You rape them. I don't care. I don't care. He was embarrassed, so he was trying to cover it up. I don't care. I don't care. You, I don't care. And it was just my reaction was visceral. I couldn't believe he said. And I'm gonna tell you something. It's very niche. It's very, it's very. Um, it might not pertain to you, but I'm going to try to tell you in an entertaining fashion because it might uh, remind you or it might, uh, you might know some people in the story, maybe, potentially. So this is a story about before I started working there. This company essentially was a magic company. Remember, they make magic kits, they sell magic supplies and all this stuff. And you don't know, it's kind of not a huge industry, but every industry has their, you know, like their, their peaks and their valleys. You know, even the hacky sack industry has one big company that makes hacky sacks, you know. So... 
they were a relatively big company. And the reason was because the uh, the person who owns the company, the one this whole podcast is about, very uh, cleverly, this was, this was a good move, the only good move I've ever heard him make, uh, was getting internet magicians to come and demonstrate his product. So if there was a toy fair, internet magicians would go. There's magic conventions where groups of magicians come and we learn like magic tricks and we see the new tricks that are out there, you know? So for instance, someone might have a new trick where you can balance a credit card on a pencil on a deck of cards and this new trick lets you do it anywhere and they're showing it at this convention and then you might see every magician everywhere doing it on TV and whatnot. So that's exactly, uh, that's kind of how it works. So uh, he was having these... I would say rel- relatively famous magicians come and do like demonstrations for fairs and do online videos at the museum. And this was bringing in thousands and thousands and thousands of views. And these are like uh, people who are like, I would say relatively famous. So like, for instance, Shin Lim is a person who was on America's Got Talent. He's the Asian guy with the really spooshy hair that does the really crazy magic with smoke. He won America's Got Talent once, went back, and won again against all the champions. And he won two years in a row. And he's like their favorite person ever. So he was in um, at the early stages before he was super famous. And then there's this one guy named Chris Ramsey who was a magician who solves puzzles on YouTube. You might see him. He has like three or four million views. He's always like fucking look, look him up. Chris Ramsey. He solves puzzles. It's pretty cool so he was having people like this come in and we were getting just a ton of people online getting hits and people doing events at our uh, museum slash magic shop and one day he apparently fucked over one of their friends because they have this little group of magicians that all have matching tattoos this is real it's a secret society of magicians with matching tattoos called the 52 this is incredible because the 52 uh, essentially the tattoo group, the group of all these like famous young magicians that like are in the secret society that I am not in. I'm going to let you know they did not invite me, but uh, whatever, my invitation is still waiting. But uh, this this group, he fucked up over one of their members in some like bad business deal. And this guy made a video on YouTube. Video got thousands of views and everyone in this group said, fuck that company everyone in this group so no longer did any of these people decided they wanted to make like decide they want to make con uh no longer did any of these video <sighs> shit here we go no longer did any of these people want to make videos with the company anymore but they all decided they weren't going to send their fans there anymore and they were all like told their fans about it and the crazy thing is at this point the video that they made with shin lim the america's got talent winner has like seven million, eight million views right now, and that's from last year. So that that lets you know how popular like this is, and how much of an impact that would make. So after that, uh, the company went downhill, went into a spiral. Um, they never got their sales back up again. And uh, like I, to let you know how much six million views affects a company. Uh, when I was there, the uh, that like the sales for that range, that period. When it first started popping off, the the, the company website got 248,000% more hits. Like when you look on the amount percentage boosted from last month, from, from that month before to the month that video dropped, 248,000%. So that's like... <sighs> I wish I wish I could tell you how much that was, but like I, I, I can't even like give you an accurate comparison. But that's uh, that is how much a uh, one kind of viral YouTube video can affect a company. So by fucking over the secret group of fifty-two 
magicians. <laughs> he essentially ruined his business and he hired me as a person to come in and fix it. He was like, you like, he was like, I'm just so upset. I'm tripping over my words. He essentially told me that like, uh, I was like the last hope for the business that I was essentially there to help save it because every relationship was ruined and every magician in New York, which is like, you think about, that's not a big deal, but New York is a huge performance society. So it's like, I'm trying to explain this in a way that doesn't sound so minimalistic. Like you guys are magicians. That's so niche, but it's like, it's very, it's very magic is popular. It's a popular thing. It's almost, it's almost popular. I won't say theater yet, but it's, it's up there. It's so imagine like a very prominent, like theater company in New York. Imagine that kind of compared to that for just for a reference. But uh, yeah, so fucked over a bunch of uh, famous magicians. All that shit happened. Uh, his company was never the same. And then I was trying to repair it. And when he asked me what I would help do when I interviewed for the company, and he said, like, what are you what what are you going to do? What can I'm like, I'm good with PR. And he's like, well, you can't be that good with PR. You never worked in New York. How could you? And I'm like, man, listen, I know a story when I see one. I am your story because it's the Houdini Museum. I'm a young black magician and I'm working here as the director. That's your story. And he's like, and he didn't believe it. And then the next day sent out a press release to all the news stations. And that's how he got in the news because the story was so good. And to this day, he'll tell you, I have no idea how he did that, how he got that. And like, I literally just would ask, I would be like, dude, I just wrote up a really good story and sent it out because like, I knew this was like a fucking smash. But like, uh, that was the, the essentially my condition working there. I was just miserable very depressed very very angry all the time and it was cool to be able to go like on complex and it was cool to be able to film for national not national geographic the smithsonian channel and it was cool to be able to do the podcast and to be able to meet the celebrities that we got to meet and the broadway stars because people like everyone loves magic and we would get this all the time it's a very magical place but it was just so hard on my soul it felt so hard and i can't explain this enough like how unhappy I was no matter how like I was trying to like post the good points and uh and like the fact that I get to be around magic which is like a passion of mine and I get to be a young director of a company which is something I always wanted to be and I got a pretty good pay and I got like to be able to be featured in the news and everything that I thought I wanted which is everything I wanted like if you would have asked me last year what I what I wanted I would be like get in the New York Times and to do magic in New York and that's what I got to do which is why it seemed so perfect but this just fucking killed me and I was dying inside and I can't stress enough that like if you ever take if you ever see a company that has like one star on Glassdoor believe it please because that shit hurt me And but if I didn't take it at the same time I didn't get any job offers after that so I wouldn't have it's not like I would have been fine like I would have been fucked like because I would have been poor and homeless so that was definitely a move for me that I got one job offer from the one company that'll get me in the times, which is the one thing that I wanted because I am a PR person. And I knew that unless I got something in a big New York paper, I would never be able to get a job in PR in New York. So uh, that's essentially why I took the job. That's essentially why I stayed there, even though it killed me. But now uh, during the quarantine, uh, my boss, my old boss, ex-boss is the type of person that always pays people late. And I was waiting for a check from March, I think 18th or something like that. So I was waiting over a month 
for a check that I had due, and he was trying to get me to do work and to go into the city and all this shit. And I was like, you know what, dude? Just just keep your like. I was like, keep your money. Like I don't want, I don't want, I don't want it. And like it was just like that's what ended up happening. I ended up uh, just like I didn't want the money. And then he was like, well, let me send it to you. Let me send it to you. So he finally sent it. And after waiting for a month, and I'm like, I'm not gonna work anymore. So like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done, dude. Like this, this shit sucks. Like you can go like rape someone else with your sales or whatever, but like I'm done. Like this, this shit fucking sucks. Cause everyone at that company had quit. Every single person at that company had quit since I started there. And the only two people left I thought were left secretly quit and didn't tell me. And I was actually working there by myself. We had no accountants, no anyone, no. And, and this was just it was just the worst working experience I ever had. And it's. It's, it's uh, the worst work experience I ever had. And I wish, I hope none of you have to deal with anything like that ever in your life because it's, it takes you down and it makes you, it really, it, I'm at a point now where I don't want to like touch magic and I need to get out of this because it's the thing, the thing I'm best at. And I think I like doing the most, but I don't feel like adequate because it's just ruined my the way I feel about magic. When I look at magic or think about magic, I feel this like overbearing like stress or anxiety uh, because of this this job. So I don't know what I'm gonna do now. Uh, I currently have another job lined up, and I have been interviewing. And I want to tell you guys how I went from getting. I've applied for jobs in New York for the last two years. I've only lived here for about six months, but over the last two years, I've applied for jobs, and I've gotten about four interviews um, before last week. And in this last week, I've had four interviews, and I've had two that are being scheduled currently because I've reformatted my resume and I figured out how to kind of beat the ATS bots a little bit, which are the applicant tracking system bots, which scan your resume and tell them if they even want to look at your resume or not. So I'm going to tell you how to like kind of fool the bots and then I'm going to tell you a few tips for getting job interviews, what companies I've been interviewing for and how maybe you can find a job in New York even during Corona, which is what I seem to have done. So... You can follow me on Instagram at RJ the Magic Can. Thank you for listening. Listen to part two of this New York job episode or whatever you want to call it. But yes, listen to part two and thank you for listening to I Hate Everyone podcast. I should probably fucking transfer blue and brown transports.